Kristen Duquette is a globally recognized disability rights advocate, former world-class athlete, and a political appointee in the Obama administration. She's a five-time American Paralympic record holder, three-time junior national record holder, and the former captain of the U.S. Paralympic swim team for the 2010 Greek Open. In 2014, Kristen was named the Global Mentor for Disability Inclusion Initiatives under the Clinton Global Initiative University, and her analysis of the United Nations disability policies have been archived in the Academic Council for the UN system. From December 2015 to March 2017, Kristen was the confidential assistant to the Chief of Staff for the National Endowment for the Arts under the Obama administration. From December 2017 to July 2019, Kristen was appointed by DC Mayor Bowser as the chair to the city's first multimodal accessibility advisory council. She's been featured in Forbes and has shared innovative perspectives at the UN, the World Bank, the Parsons School of Design, and has been interviewed on stage by former first daughter, Chelsea Clinton. Kristen holds a BA in human rights from Trinity College and a graduate certificate in nonprofit management from Harvard. The Clinton Foundation listed Kristen as one of 12 people who will inspire you to make a difference along with Supreme Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Kristen currently lives and works for the federal government in Washington, DC. Kristen and I both have the same form of muscular dystrophy, FSHD, and she also is here to share her personal journey as well. It's an honor to have Kristen here today. I hope you enjoy her story. Welcome to Freewheeling with Carden. This podcast shares stories of people with various disabilities and shines a new light on accessibility topics. Our goal is to knock down barriers so we can roll through life a little easier and build a community to do this together. Please rate and follow this podcast or text Carden at 470-588-1215 with comments and suggestions. We welcome you on your journey towards inclusion for all. And now, your host, Carden Wyckoff, global disability advocate and wheelchair warrior. Welcome back to another episode of Free Willing with Carden. I have Kristen Duquette on joining me virtually. Hey, Kristen, how's it going? Hi, I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm well, I'm well. Just, you know, making it through COVID one day at a time, like we all are figuring it out. Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, I'm excited to have you on the podcast to just talk about muscular dystrophy. So you, you and I have the same type of muscular dystrophy and then also just your advocacy work and what the ADA means to you because it is the 30th anniversary. And just talk a little about, about your Paralympic trials. So we have a lot to talk about because you're an incredible person. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And I really thought that it was important to come on and speak and and chat with you on on your podcast because it's pretty rare to come across someone with the same condition and you know just sharing that commonality I think is really important and being open to Mm -hmm. talk about that definitely and so yeah just having that commonality and being able to talk about it I know you and I are of similar age and so I remember you were one of those first people that I met that was of the same age and I could see how you were progressing and kind of like what my life would be like because I think you're just a few years older than me. And um, But also see all the great work and kind of be like, okay, well, it is possible to be an advocate 
So talk to me a little bit about you, your uh, progression and kind of where that started. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up, well, when I was younger, when I was a kid, I didn't show any symptoms. I was running around and uh, just like any other non-disabled kid, I I was doing about, you know, six different sports at the time, which is around like six, seven. I wanted to be an Olympic swimmer when I grew up. And around seven, eight or so, my mom always had a feeling there was something off and she would kept bringing me to different doctors and all the different doctors are like, yeah, she's fine. You know, she's just developing. It's fine. And there were different times when I was on a pool deck doing swim team or gymnastics and just different memories I have of all of a sudden, like I couldn't, I couldn't stand on the vault and the coach is yelling at me to like, you know, stop landing on your knees, like stand on your feet. And I just remember being seven, eight years old, like telling, like yelling at myself, like, why aren't you doing this? Like go and do this Mm. or walking on the pool deck and my mom telling me later, she was like, your shoulders weren't back. You're, you were winging in your shoulder blades and uh, you know, different parents were like, oh no, she's just developing. Like I, one of my kids did that. It's fine. And I, I just remember, I just slowly could not keep up. I couldn't keep up with running or if I was at a practice and different, my gym teacher at the time, dance teacher, I think a few other people too, they just started to call my 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 mom and dad and say like I think I think your daughter's gait is off I think you know she really needs to get looked at mm. and I do remember vaguely them calling the house and for some reason I just thought in my in my mind that it was you know they're just calling to to tell my parents how great I am at this sport like I'm gonna be that Olympic athlete when I'm older and so I remember we won. Um, I'm from Connecticut, so we went to Connecticut Children's Hospital, and I got uh, I got genetically tested, and I don't remember the exact test that this is called, but I'm sure you do. It's it's that needle one that they like put the electricity in to different muscles to see if the muscle responds or if it's the the nerve itself that's the issue. I forget that test. But I remember doing it at nine years old. I remember they had to... Like an electromagnetic yeah, kind of thing. I, for, I think I know what you're talking about. They use it in physical therapy. No, it's a, it's a test. And I forget the exact name off the top of my head. But I've had it done a few times. And they essentially take... It's almost like a needle. And they, they put it into different parts of your body that they want to test. And so they're testing... Mm. They'll, they'll put a bit of electricity into it. I think it's electricity and to see if the muscle retracts to find out if it's the muscle that's having the issue or if it's the nerve that's having the issue. And uh, I remember having that dad and they put it into my kneecap. And I remember it was the most awful thing I experienced at the time. But I remember, you know, right after that, I got my very first CD, which was 
Britney Spears, her first Hit Me Baby One More Time album, which is awesome. And I got like a a CD (laughs) ROM player and headphones. And I really didn't understand what was going on. But I was like, wow, I just went through that. But I got this Britney Spears CD. And it was the week of my ninth birthday was when I was when we found out the diagnosis, which again, I, I was nine. So I had no clue what that meant. Mm-hmm. I would still consider like myself at that time, more of a invisible disability. It wasn't really visible at that point. And so I remember just being in my classroom in fourth, fifth grade, just like, wow, like this, this is my secret. So if I like my friend enough, like I'll tell them and just, you know, going and getting a little bit older and uh, being a preteen in fifth and sixth grade, I, I started to limp walking. I quit all sports then too. I just, I am so type A and very ambitious that and stubborn that I, I was just like, look, like I wanted to be an Olympic swimmer. I wanted to do all this stuff. And I can't keep up with my friends. So what's the point? So I just quit. And obviously, I'm not sure about you, but I know that different doctors said still be active, but don't be like intensely active. And so I just took up the violin. I still wanted to be good at something. I always wrote contracts to my parents every semester or quarter that the school year started. I'm like, if I get straight A, I'll get XYZ. So I just, I don't know where this like contract thing came up, but I had them sign it. We dated it. We put it out in the fridge. And so if I got straight A's, which I usually did, I don't know when I didn't during those times, but I threw myself into academics <laughs> and music is what I'm trying to say. Preteens was awful. I remember I when I started to limp and fall and I just uncontrollably would keep falling and I would just be tired a lot and I was quite frankly depressed at like 11 12 13 the nurse had to come into my class at the time in fifth grade and tell my class the condition that I had and to stop making fun of me and I wasn't doing this to get more attention and I just remember I couldn't be in the room because I was so embarrassed and so ashamed that I was not like anyone else that I grew up with. I grew up um, in a very homogeneous, white, suburban area in Connecticut, which is, it's fine, but I was definitely the only disabled person. And obviously at that time too, it's not like Mm. there was much inclusion or acceptance on a grand level of, disability in that sense. Mm -hmm. So I grew up with a lens of doing the best I could if there was going to be a treatment, but seeing my condition as more of a, 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 my disability as more of a medical problem and not as a, a social identity and acceptance, which I think I came to that when I was in college. But, um, I'm trying to think, uh, I got I got back into swimming. I retaught myself how to swim when I was 15. I started to, yeah, I started to before that do different holistic physical therapies, 
homeopathic therapies and they were helpful. Mm-hmm. When I was like 14, I started to go gluten-free, sugar-free, dairy-free. That was really helpful to take down the anti-inflammatories and just make my body mm-hmm. as healthy as it could. I think I started to use a wheelchair for a long distance in the eighth grade for anyone on this uh, field trip for a fair up in Massachusetts. And again, I know for me, just the social and psychological impact growing up with a degenerative Mm -hmm. condition, I think is more impactful than the actual physical portion of it. So Mm -hmm. definitely was working through that. And then when I was in high school, I started to use a walker and I hated it at the time when I first did, even though I knew it was helpful, but I just wanted to be like everyone else. I just wanted to fit in. I just wanted to blend in. I just, I didn't want to stand out. I hated it. I do remember I went to a Catholic high school. So all the majority of the girls wore the the standard uniform skirt. And I just thought it was so pretty, Mm -hmm. but my legs were not straight. My legs were more than knock kneed. And I was so ashamed on how my legs looked and how they operated uh, when I walked. And I I walked and I had these medical shoes. They were called, they are called Z-coils. There's like a coil at the end of every heel or the heel of the shoe. And it helps with um, shock absorption and helps like with your back and stuff. So by that time, I had severe lower, lower doses. I was still walking again, so stubborn. No one could tell me no. I do remember there were times when I think it was my parents, maybe some close loved ones being like, you know, you would be less tired if you used a wheelchair for like to go from class to class. And I just didn't want to do it. I remember crying myself to sleep. Like I just, I don't want to be that much more different. I, I can't do it. And so I retaught myself how to swing when I was 15, 16, and just, just to be on my high school swim team because I was so sick of being a manager of a tennis team, just different managers of sports teams that I, I'm okay with math. It's fine, but I, I'm not a fan of like going out of my way to do it. Uh, and I'm more of a team, like I want to <laughs> be on the field. I want to do it. I want to be that athlete. So I yeah. thought to myself, you know, like I'm using a walker, I'm doing this, but I just want to be with my friends. And 85% of my school at the time did sports, you know, it was a private Catholic high school in Connecticut. So I wanted to be like my friends. And I, uh, again, with these contracts, I wrote a contract of if I get straight A's, mom and dad, can you, (laughs) mom and dad, can you get me to membership to the Valley's gym down the street from my high school? So I can just relearn how to swim. And it was a very small pool. It was maybe about 10, 10 to 11 yards ish. And I just slowly retaught myself how to swim. And I picked swimming because I didn't want to use some device or adaptive device or technology 
I wanted to just use my own body and see what I could really do. And I just remember like, that was something that I loved to do when I was a kid and I had a dream, but maybe that dream was to just help me get to feeling accepted and in a community and back with my friends. So that's what I did. I set a goal and I just uh, threw myself into that goal of, I have no clue where I got this number, but I, I was like, I want to swim 600 laps in one day a year from now. So I can tell this high school coach, like, I am not going to make any points to your team. I'm not going to be fast enough. But uh, showing my endurance, I hope this shows how much I love this sport and what I can bring to the team. And I just want to be with my friends. And uh, that's what I did. Mm. Uh, again, I have no clue where I got the number 600 from. I think it was more of like, that sounds like a big number. Like, let's do it. But, um, yeah. I did. did yeah, I did. I, it was just so nice. calming to... You know, I was by myself in this small pool. I thought it was awesome of what I was doing. Getting back into getting an endorphin rush from not doing it for six years and not being active. I just started to feel more positive and hopeful again. And I think obviously that's a biological thing too. But I would dream. I would you know, create these scenarios in my head when I was swimming and counting these laps. Didn't matter the pace. I just wanted to keep going and going. And <laughs> if there was this uh, a senior citizen or some sort of, you know, other person swimming next to me, I would pretend it was like the final countdown. Be like, this is the end all be all. And <laughs> I, I'd be like, see you, you, you be that. Uh, <laughs> you know, older person and they had no clue that, you know, they were racing you. Um, <laughs> but I'm just like creating those scenarios, like high stakes and like, okay, this is, you're swimming with Michael Phelps right now in the Olympics. Like, what is that going to be like? Not even knowing that what was to come. I just was doing that because it was fun in my imagination and I missed it. And so when I did reach that, I reached out to the high school swim coach in an email and she emailed me back. It was my sister's junior prom at the time because I remember when she emailed me back, so many people were at our house for pictures and I printed off the email. I highlighted different portions of it. I was like, this is amazing. And so essentially what she said was, um, I don't know you, uh, but you sound incredible. Of course, you can be on our team as long as you train for the Paralympics and for 2012. A lot of great disabled wow. swimmers have come from Connecticut, and I think that you have what it takes to do that. Mm. And again, I was like, what is what is the Paralympics? Like, what is disabled sports? Mm -hmm. You know, even going back to when I was 13, I remember watching the 2004 Olympic Games and swimming and I just woke up one night and this is when I was no longer competing for anything and I was depressed. I really didn't know what what was the point of my life because I wasn't doing things that I loved and I didn't feel included either. I didn't feel accepted, right? 
a lot of mm-hmm. assets in my life. So I remember waking up and looking at all these ribbons of old competition stuff. And I was like, my God, I wish if I could have one more shot, I would love to give it my all. And wouldn't you know, mm-hmm. uh, six years later, I swam at that same pool that I watched when I was 13 years old. And I just keep reflecting that hopefully, uh, I am hopeful that we can have that visibility now. So there's younger kids and girls and boys and even older adults that become newly newly disabled, they see themselves represented in all facets of life. I think that would have changed the course Mm -hmm. for a lot of things, not just for myself, but I think for a lot of people, even though our stories are unique and interesting and I do believe that we fulfill our own purpose in time. But I do reflect on that moment quite a lot sometimes as to, no, this is why representation matters. So, yeah. So, I was on the team. I started to get into disabled sports. My first disabled swimming was in 2007 in College Park, Maryland in December. And I remember it so vividly because I just... It was one of the first times I felt like I belonged somewhere without even saying a word. Yeah. Um, And I was still walking at that time, but it was very cautiously. And I started to use Mm -hmm. a a chair and a scooter full-time. Well, not full-time just yet, but almost full-time when I started college in 2009 because there was just no way I was going to know. And... In the beginning, my freshman year, I would use the scooter to go from building to building, but then I would get out of my scooter and my walker was attached to the back. So then I could walk in each building. But then I just, I, I started to get too much anxiety as to when the class ended, when I was going to get up and go and... I just realized it was just a lot easier to just stay in my chair and transfer slide from my chair to the desk mm-hmm. or, or things like that. Just safer that way too. Oh, yeah. Less painful. Yeah. All the above. <laughs> right. And then also, I mean, you and I can really probably just like standing up from a chair. I mean, for me, it was at least seven or eight years ago when I could do that. But I always remember just, I just don't want people to look at the way that I get up. Yeah. Because because of the lordosis yeah. and just like the way you have to like lean on things. And it's like, yeah. I just feel like I look ugly doing that. Yeah. Totally. And these thoughts, they're intrusive and they come into your mind. And it's, I don't want people to look at me. I'm ugly. This is not beautiful. This is right. not what a woman looks like. This is not what an abled body or a non-disabled body looks like and I just want to be normal. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm sure you can relate to this level too. There there were so many times where growing up, I just would have people not only stare, it did (laughs) and I think swimming helped for sure. Like when I broke records or things like that, like that Mm -hmm. helped with my body and my confidence and being comfortable in a swimsuit and doing all these things with my body that no one else is doing on the pool deck. That helped a lot. However, 
growing up, I would get so many times, what's wrong with you? What's, mm-hmm. what's wrong? And obviously... What's the, wrong? Yeah. <laughs> all the time. All, and obviously, you know, those are very well-intentioned. But when you chronically get that, that you start to believe that to a certain extent, that there is mm-hmm. something wrong. So yeah, I totally get it. And also the staring... I think at this point, if people do still stare and I notice, I just say hi or stare right back, um, which makes them <laughs> equally uncomfortable. So then now we're at some sort of similar playing field that like, okay, you're staring back. Yeah, I see you. Right. So, yeah. Well, what's interesting is when I was walking, obviously had a very big gait, lordosis, like looked like I probably was going to fall every time I took a step. But, you know, I had a certain point of gravity, center of gravity that I had created for myself that I was still able to walk. Yeah. And I feel like I got more stairs walking than I did using a wheelchair. Yeah. And to this day now that I'm using a wheelchair... But I would say, which is interesting because I think people are fearful more of a gate or something that looks unsteady on, and that's like kind of wobbly yeah. versus a wheelchair or a scooter, yeah. which you kind of just like make a glance and then keep going. Yeah. Yeah. But I think now I get a lot of, well, you look healthy and normal. <laughs> and I'm like, well, <laughs> I kind of am. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Kind of am. <laughs> I mean, for the most part. <laughs> yeah. So, and I think the other thing too, which I think goes into advocacy also, is probably the biggest transition that I had to do was about five years ago when it just was too unsafe to walk and stand on my own and especially being independent and wanting that independence that I made the decision to no longer stand and walk anymore. And I think that that, that was really hard, but I also knew that being in a chair helps my mobility and my access Mm -hmm. to the world. And then also I came to the conclusion that my value and contributions to the world and my purpose and who I am as a person is not dictated by whether I walk or not, or if Mm -hmm. I'm in a device or not because of what I bring to the table. And I think that that is probably the biggest issue that I have with mainstream media when we see stories of they no longer walk or oh my gosh look at them they're they're walking across the they're walking down the aisle to their wedding or they're walking Mm -hmm. to get their diploma I think again that's like a very personal thing and I I respect people's decisions and reasons to do that but my opinion is I find how those stories are depicted very harmful for people that are disabled to a non-disabled and able-bodied eye that Mm -hmm. your value does not increase for all of a sudden being able to 
do something evil bodied again mm-hmm. because yeah. that is very harmful. Uh, that is so harmful. I, yeah. Yeah, I will say just the media in general portrays what a disability should look like or how we should view a disability. And one thing that really stuck out to me is when you were talking about the skirts in private school and you had this idea in your mind of what a beautiful girl looked like in that skirt, in that uniform. And for you, you didn't feel like you fit into that mold. Did you ever feel like you ever did fit into that mold at that time? No, I don't think I did. Um, I wore pants, which was the other option. So they were kind mm-hmm. of baggy pants. So you, I, I felt like I could hide my, my legs and how not straight they were. Probably by senior year, I did wear a skirt. But even, even at that point, I didn't feel beautiful, I guess, in that sense. Also, because I was a senior in high school and I didn't drive like my friends. So I wasn't mm-hmm. in like the senior parking lots or things like that. I was still waiting for my parents to pick me up. No, dad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm trying to think. No, um, I think, I think I started to feel more beautiful the more I got into the water because it felt Mm -hmm. so much more like home. I do remember Mm -hmm. going to my senior prom. I did not go to junior prom. I asked a boy that I thought was a good friend to just come as my friend. And he said, yes. And then two weeks later, he said he forgot that he said yes to someone else and I mm. uh, felt awful. And so I was like, I'm not going. Sure. I did go my senior year. I I would probably say I did feel good to that extent. I had, I was like shoulder, showing my shoulders. And so I was really self-conscious about my shoulders, but I liked that I was in the dress, in that dress. But I think I felt most beautiful and at home when I was always in the water. And then in the water, you were in the Paralympic trials and you were training for that. Tell me a little bit more about the journey of that. And you went from swimming 600 laps in a single day to then your journey to being on Team USA and keep going on. Yeah, I mean, but there's so much. There's so much to say. I'll try and keep it high level as possible. But I was on the college swim team uh, for freshman year. I went to Wheaton College at the time. And I talked with the coach leading into it of, you know, obviously, again, it was Division three, but I wasn't going to be adding any points. and. This is what I'm doing, X, Y, Z. They were, at the time, they seemed really supportive and on board. I was 19, so I went during my freshman year to Bogota, Colombia. We all got 
almost all of us on Team USA, we got the flu, which is awful. Oh, no. I, I remember um, being sick in bed in Bogota, Colombia, like 3,000 feet above sea level. It was some like high altitude. And oh, I was watching Legally Blonde in my bed and like, okay, <laughs> Legally Blonde. <laughs> so Legally Blonde hits home. Like I feel very comforted now always watching Legally yeah. Blonde. Um, <laughs> It was it was an experience. I don't really recommend. I, I don't have any interest going back to Bogota, Colombia, like eleven years later. <laughs> but that's fine. Going into, I started to get really fast my freshman year. Uh, I think it was because I was on the college team. But to talk about inclusion and acceptance, uh, my. The the college coach, even though I was improving, I was getting faster and I was on Team USA and then I just got asked to be on another team for Team USA to go to Greece. He wrote me an email a few weeks before my sophomore year stating all the reasons why I should no longer be on the Collegiate Swim team and that they were doing tryouts and that it all related back to my disability. It was a bunch of bullet points saying like, uh, mm. you know, you ask for extra help to get out of the pool. And it, it all related to that. And again, I felt shame and I felt like a burden. And so I... Wow. Uh, for something that you loved so much and felt like yeah. at home. Yeah. So I com- mm. I filed a complaint with the Department of Education. I didn't want to sue the school. I just wanted to train. I just wanted to be somewhere that I felt where I belonged in an academic sense. I I had that community with different disabled athletes, but you only come across that. You only see them, you know, maybe five to six times a year. You still have to train and, and live your life. So. I transferred very quickly to Trinity College and I trained privately and I commuted my first year at Trinity, so my sophomore year, and then I lived on campus my junior and senior year of college. And Mm -hmm. at those times, I was training and going to about four different pools, at times being in a pool at 5 a.m. at Wesleyan, which isn't too far from Trinity College in in Connecticut. And then I would, you know, my mom would drive me back to campus and I would go to class and I would just be tired Mm -hmm. by 10 o'clock that I would be like lights out by 10, 11 o'clock. And I trained and it was awesome in the sense that I broke records. My dorm room was filled with motivational post-it notes. Uh, oh, that's great. <laughs> I was part of a, a really cool, interesting documentary called Endless Abilities about uh, different disabled athletes at different levels and training throughout the country. Cool, cool. But I did, I was really injured. I, um, right after I did a half Ironman open ocean swim out in San Diego, which is about oh, wow. an, a mile. 1.2 miles and it was freezing and it was 
I thought I was halfway done. In reality, I was not like at all anywhere close. <laughs> um, I uh, tore or I pulled a nerve in my neck going into my right arm. And a lot of Jeez. doctors thought that it was a progression, that I overtrained, that I overdid a muscle because training with FSH, uh, if you injure yourself, it, you're most likely not going to get that back. And mm-hmm. I do, uh, there is that fine line of pushing yourself to a certain limit and then you need to recover and, and really taking that into practice because they're, to train smartly, there really is no go hard or go home. It's actually, how are you training most effective for your body? And I had to, right. yeah, so I had to um, rehab for 11 months. I fortunately did break a few more records. I had had to get declassified. I got in the Paralympic League, you get classified into a certain class system based off of your mobility. And so with the injury with my right arm, almost all of it came back, but my strength wasn't there. So I got moved down a class and I did make it to trials and I was at trials. I knew I had a feeling I just wasn't going to make it. I I felt like I had put way too much pressure on myself, but also I threw everything I had into something that I really wanted it to work. And it was a childhood dream of mine. And in my mind, mm-hmm. it made sense for it to happen because I wanted it so badly and I worked towards it so badly. I had to be top 10 in the world to be considered to make the London team and for the 50 free, which is not my event at all. Uh, I'm a backstroker. I think I was like 13th at the time and I was crushing. I've never felt something so badly. I wanted go and slip right through my fingers. But at the same time, I learned so much of what I thought was failure, what I thought I couldn't endure. Because leading into that, I I thought I had just this very precise plan of like, if I didn't make London, I was going to train for world championships. I was going to do X, Y, Z. I'll, I'll still keep going, blah, blah, blah. And I just, along with just being depressed that that did not go that way for me, I also felt a profound sense of freedom that I didn't have to wake up at 5 a.m. I didn't have to do all this stuff. And so... I took right. <laughs> I took a year off. I was like, let me just enjoy my senior year in college. I'll still swim. Mm-hmm. I slowly retired from my world, uh, my world class classification. So I didn't renew it. And there were times where I would just cry on a pool deck and just get it out. And then I would go swim because my, my body still needed it. And that's the thing. Um, mm-hmm. Swimming is one of the most best things I could ever do for my body. But so I knew it benefited my body, even though I really didn't want to do it. And I still kept going because I knew it was so helpful and just a sense of freedom. But um, yeah, I, I basically my senior year in college, just like dove into what felt like college of 
okay, I can hang out with friends. Let me live it up. Right? <laughs> I definitely was not a, a partier at all. Um, but it was good to socialize and I really just absorbed what I studied. I majored in human rights for my undergrad and my honor senior thesis was whether I took the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And there's an article within that convention of Article 30.5 to the right to sport. And so my advisor at the time was like, you could easily tie this on an international and a national and a personal level. And so that's what I did. Cool. And um, that's how I started to get involved with uh, interviewing different advocates and people that actually helped write that convention. Just very, it was incredible. And then at that same time was when I was like, okay, I'm, I'm learning about human rights. How do I actually want to implement this once I graduate college? Because there's only so much I could do with knowing about human rights and obviously liberal arts and you know, I know how to read and write and really research, but how am I actually going to use that? And um, I, I took up an internship at the Connecticut State Legislature for the Senate Majority Leader at the time. I thought that public service mm-hmm. and politics may be a way to implement human rights. I wasn't mm-hmm. sure if it was cynical or not. So I was like, let me try it out. I don't know. And I'm a people person. So um, I love talking to people and I, I really care about others and what we're doing for this world and our society. So that's kind of where it slowly started to transition from from intense sport to how can I actually contribute. And I think another thing that I was really pondering was, okay, Kristen, that's great that you could be really fast in the water and say that you got a bunch of medals, but what are you actually doing to contribute to other people in this world? Because there will be a time that I'm no longer here. And I don't want to say like, well, Kristen was just really fast in the water. And I think that there's so much more multidimensional aspects to myself and, and yourself and all of us that I really wanted to not like leave something behind, but I wanted to keep contributing to ideologies and systems that would be most useful to push this world and this society forward. Oof. (laughs) (laughs) That was was great. (laughs) And I mean, it's so important that we're leaving our mark. And I think having a disability really allows you to see the gaps in the representation and inclusion and you know, whatever it may be. And just listening to your whole story, it seems like at every year you're faced with some type of roadblock that people put on you. They say, no, you're not strong enough. No, you're, you need help getting into the pool. No, your legs don't look pretty in a, right. in a skirt. And it just like continues every day. There's a new roadblock and a challenge and... I feel like people with disabilities rise to a higher level of, all right, put it on me. Keep coming. Because guess what? This is only fuel to the fire. 
And that's what you're doing is you started doing all these internships and with human rights. And I think it's just really awesome to see what you're doing to make a change. Thank you. Um, is there anything that you can speak to? Yeah, you're welcome. And it takes people like you to continue to just knock at the door because looking at the Americans with Disabilities Act, you know, this is our 30th year anniversary, but yet we have so far to come and still far to go. So yeah, it takes people like us to just continue to chip away at the iceberg every day of, okay, well, I don't feel included here. I don't feel represented here. What can we do to change that? So that when we are gone, the people that come behind us don't have to feel those feelings of isolation and depression and anxiety because this world wasn't built for them. Yeah. And people haven't been educated and trained to include them. Yeah, it's so true. I think on a broader level, it and through a sociological and social justice lens, I keep reminding, keep reminiscing and, and well, not reminiscing because I didn't live through it, but keep looking and reflecting back on the civil rights movement and mm-hmm. how there's so many other minority populations that feel this way and for very valid reasons. Like if we think about the Voting Rights Act, by no means does that mean that uh, people that are African-American or of different colors actually have full rights to vote in our country. And, right. There's um, so much gerrymandering and, right. and line drawing that just limit them. Right. And, you know, we can see that too with a lot of like, with LGBTQ issues, just because it's finally legal to get married does not mean that it's fully inclusive and acceptable for people of different sexualities. And so that's where I connect that to a lot of people that still are curious and interested in wanting to learn and understand about disability in that sense, that just because that we have the ADA does not mean at all that this world is, this uh, American society is still perfect. I, I think that the ADA is the foundation of what could be and what can be. But the ADA also, and this goes to a lot of laws, just generally, just because there's a law doesn't mean that culturally it's changed and is accepted and mm-hmm. also necessarily enforced. So I think that that's where a lot of issues or a lot of improvement can come from. And I also think to Going back to the civil rights movement, I keep thinking back to people's faith and their spirituality that they rise above what is their reality at the moment to what could be because they have so much faith in a higher power or a higher consciousness that can bring a society forward that they know that it's not going to happen in their lifetime, but that doesn't mean that it won't happen, period. And I think that that's also another thing that I also talk about with, you know, some of my friends too, that about the Me Too movement or women and and abuse and violence is 
is there is still so much more that we can do for women in equal pay and having more women in high profile positions because they're qualified. It's all these things are not going to happen tomorrow, but we are all agents of change that we can help push that forward for when it will happen. But that's, it's not going to be immediate. And I don't expect that actual true change, sustainable change is going to immediately occur within the next 24 hours. I am a firm believer that sustainable change happens over time, that you have to work with systems, that things are already in place and we have to reach out to people and meet them where they are, which can be quite difficult at times too. So where on a personal and professional level, where can I use empathy? How can I be best of emotional intelligence to always check in with myself? Be like, okay, I need to take a step back. This is too much. I need to take a rest. How do I fuel up to continue moving forward? Hmm. Hmm. That's important to make sure that you're also taking care of yourself before you go and help others. Yeah. Because you're not at your full potential if you aren't taking care of yourself. Yeah. And thinking about just the Americans with Disabilities Act, and I like how you said, sure, we have a law in place which sets up what can be, what the future could be. But, you know, why do we still roll around and face inequities? Why why are there elevators that are broken or missing? Why are there buildings that are still inaccessible? Why are there children who can't get accessible technology to thrive in grade school, you know, so it's just, it continues over and over these obstacles. But I do think things like what we're facing right now, this whole racial injustice movement, it's like another civil rights 2.0 and we're living in it. And it's really awesome to see that because I really do believe that people's mindsets are shifting. They're waking up and they're realizing I was at a conference last week and so many businesses kind of had this awakening of, wow, I I didn't even think about my marketing content. I didn't even think about inclusive hiring. I didn't even think about equal pay and all these other avenues that can be. And then they're starting to think about, okay, what about all the other minority groups that are available? You know, how can we be a more inclusive company and world? And so it starts those incremental changes. And you're right, it is. It, It takes time to make these changes, to get people to change. And when we bring on new generations, they then adapt to that norm of it is normal to treat people that, who are LGBTQ or who are black or indigenous or people of color, whatever it is, or disabled, that, oh, that's just, they're just a person, right? You know, that may look a little different, smell a little different, walk a little different, roll a little different. It doesn't matter. Just we're human at the end of the day, and human rights right. is so important. Yeah, we are. We're people. We deserve that right, especially in America. Right. Absolutely. So, <laughs> yeah, I think it's just really awesome to get to talk, talk to you about this. Where do you see the, or where do you see where the future will be, and what do you think we still need to do? Um, I think obviously there's a ton. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, I think that there, I mean, there's already discussions on this, but I think it, if it's not already a slow reality, I think it will become a reality of the discussion about human rights and biotech and like biotechnology with stem cells and whether it's with CRISPR or not and using that to you know not only assist with different conditions that people are open to wanting that but using that to create like a more able-bodied person and then also Mm -hmm. I think the disability rights community were very wary of essentially eradicating a lot of disabled people through that technology and also hardening the already disabled stereotypes that are really harmful. And so I think with the advancement of technology in that sense, there's going to be a hurdle. I hope, my hope in other areas, so what when it comes to voting and campaigns and, and database systems, that disability is seen as a demographic, whether that's on Fox or MSNBC or NBC of, well, you know, over 25 to 85, black, white, and then we have disabled, right? Like having that on there and seeing disability as a social identity and more of these Mm -hmm. facets. I think social media is helping out for sure and really giving knowledge and firsthand experiences to people mm-hmm. very oh, totally yeah very easily accessible so I think that will push it forward I think always just the general thing when it comes to laws or policies is how is that being enforced and we yep. we do have a lot of offices and systems that enforce the ADA and you can report things, but I always think that that can be improved, but there is a part of me that it, I hope we live in a world where this is very idealistic, but discrimination in that sense is not as high of Mm -hmm. always having to report things and that it's just really? given. It's just there because mm-hmm. that's just how it should be. That universal design is, period. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that the Paralympics and Paralympic athletes are more represented in our mainstream media. I hope we see that too with disabled models. Mm-hmm. And I hope we continue to see more of the disability community more reflected just in all facets of life that you do not need to be cured to show your value in that being disabled is a very human thing. So I hope we can continue to move towards that ideology. Although I am a bit weary of uh, medical technology uh, in terms of disability rights in communities, I don't I think everyone should always just have autonomy over their body. So hopefully an autonomy and choice over their body and what they want to do. So I hope that still remains and also does not hinder 
all the work and right. more continued work that needs to get done for the disability community. Long way to go. Right. <laughs> but I am hopeful. <laughs> Me too. I feel like it will take another 30 years. Hopefully, that's all it will take. Yeah. Um, because just thinking about how far we have come in 30 years and where we can go in the next 30 years, I think we could really make tremendous movements in the right direction. So, Kristen, thank you so much for your time, your expertise, being vulnerable and sharing everything about who you are and what your world, your ideal world should look like for people with disabilities. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you, friends, for listening. Please rate and follow this podcast or text Carden at 470-588-1215 with comments and suggestions. Tune in next week for another disability topic.